0: By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information.
1: Welcome to Moody's Talks, KYC Decoded. I'm your host, Alex Pillow, and this episode is presented by Moody's Analytics. A quick disclaimer. By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies, views or positions of Moody's Corporation and its affiliates. A different type of podcast today for this bonus episode. Rather than me interviewing an expert guest, author, or panel, I'm actually going to have a go at answering some questions myself. Why on earth are we doing this? Well, Jody Hooton from ID Now got in touch after listening to KYC Decoded and asked if I'd be willing to talk about what I've observed in the KYC ecosystem and particularly how that impacts fintechs and crypto businesses amongst other regulated entities um, for a content series that they're doing. I've done my best to share my honest observations here and hope you enjoy seeing the tables turned on me with Jodie asking the questions.
0: All right, let's start with um, what are the major issues and challenges with the current KYC process for UK financial services?
1: So danger of uh, being too obvious, the the one this year in particular has been sanctions, right? Always been there, something everyone's always had to do, arguably the most serious thing to get wrong. And with Russia's invasion of Ukraine under under Putin's leadership, that has become the topic. Uh, I've been at conferences this year where practitioners, leaders of, of sanctioned departments, AML departments, KYC departments, saying they've got staff in, in tears some days because of the workload that's being created and the pressure they feel and the responsibility they feel to get this right. And it's not that they weren't doing it, but they, it hadn't been under scrutiny for maybe, or this level of scrutiny for quite a while. So sanctions is the big one. And what we really looked at at Moody's here was, it's not just a case of I'm screening the relevant lists. That is very, very much the, Table stakes, and it's not even the whole table stakes. It's it's part of it. Um, so, sort of the phrase that we sort of gather our, our thought leadership around is going beyond the lists, because actually, when you look at the regulation, when you look at how sanctioned oligarchs and sanctioned entities operate and get around these things, it's through networks, it's through ownership and control of other other entities and, and people, and. Therefore, you've got to have data and technology and processes and expertise that can, can go beyond the lists and actually understand what is your true sanctions exposure. And there's been a lot of dealing with that right across government agencies, banks, corporates looking at their supply chains, professional services looking at their client lists, so on and so on. So that has been number one. With that, and particularly within the payment realm, there's then the issue that's always been there, false positives. When more work gets created, you've then got to triage it you've got to find the right thing. So again, that's not a new issue, but it's something that has become more looked at, more worried about because when you have more work and more false positives, you then can't focus on the real investigations and then you feel under threat to miss something. And when you know everyone's going to be looking at this and it has real world consequences that you can see on the news every night, you know it's a, a higher stressor um, so that that's being dealt with and Obviously saying we're trying to help clients with as our, our peers in, in the reg tech industry linked into that offshore ownership chains um, saying that we we look at a lot. And we've had people on our podcast, KYC Decoded, like Oliver Bullough come on and talk around ultimate beneficial ownership, how the rich, powerful and sometimes criminal um, will Use those to skirt these regulations, these controls of our clients, and our clients are trying to figure out ways to unravel that so they can re- report the right things to their their authorities. shell companies becoming a bigger issue as they were before, but again linked into the sanctions linked into some of the deeper crime that that is being talked about in our industry press and also mass you know mass media press, not proper crime because there's lots of types of crime but some of the real financial crime that the bigger stuff is happening for a number of shell companies that are globally spread out in these networks. Again, uh, people like Graham Barrow talk about this a lot on LinkedIn, and again, we've been lucky enough to have him on our podcast to talk about that. With all of those things going on that, that we see, that one of the big challenges is not actually the the thing that comes at you comes at you. It's your processes and your organisation. So a lot of KYC teams are still very siloed, and so therefore, so are their systems. You know, one team is. Maybe responsible just for screening the list, but another team is looking at ownership and another team is looking at payments and another team is looking at identity verification. How do you get all of them to share the risk signals, combine it all, put it in a coherent profile, coherent narrative that you can understand the risk of a customer or a third party or a supplier? That sort of underpins a lot of all of these sort of uh, thematic things that come at you. You know, In a couple of years time, I, I hope the sort of sanctions stuff has moved on because hopefully the, the world situation has improved. Um, where it will still obviously be important, but people will be on top of it, but there'll be something else. And that will, again, mean you've got to make sure your systems are joined up. And I think people are really realizing that with the current sort of stressor that's being put on them.
0: How does the UK's risk-based approach to managing AML and KYC compare with countries that may have a more stringent and comprehensive one-size process in place? Are there benefits and disadvantages to both?
1: So I can sort of talk for a few of those uh, for both both styles or both approaches. So if you think about risk-based and the, and the problems of that, it really relies on the judgment of individuals and, and their respective firms. Sometimes it's a committee of people. Sometimes it's one person. Sometimes it's, you know, a small team depends on the, on the company and the size and their governance structures. But if you're relying on judgment, you then have to rely on really effective enforcement when that judgment is wrong. Um, and therefore, if someone's gone off and done something left field and they say, well, it's risk-based, the only way that you rectify that if they're wrong is is a really active and and sort of accurate enforcement mechanism. You leave some room for doubt, uh, which can be a problem with that approach. Um, one person will call something risk based, another one will call it inadequate, and where you draw that line is is naturally subjective because it's about people and opinions. If you think about the one size though, and the problems of that, well, it sets a bar. It's a bar, so you can debate: is it the right bar? So the regulated entities, but also the criminals, they know that a lot of the time people will do only what they're told to do. They won't look to go beyond that. Um, so, if the criminal knows, well, this is the bar. You know, a really obvious rule um, would be: there's the ten thousand dollar rule, right? In the US, like payments above that have to go through certain scrutiny. So, funnily enough. A lot of payments go just under that, or are always under ten thousand. Doesn't mean you have other ways to catch them, but it's a flag or a pointer to the people you're trying to catch out. Um, so when you go to a one size on anything, you actually are giving information to the what I consider the opposition. I sort of try to think of this whole thing as a, a really important game that's being played that will infinitely go on. There will always be criminals. There will always be people trying to catch them. I hope, and therefore you got to have an element of, um, element of surprise <laughs> ultimately to win if you go out to sort of art, art of war and all of that good stuff. Um, so when you set a one-size-fits-all approach, if people don't go beyond it, then, then you're giving up some of that advantage. I think about the advantages with risk-based, well, it allows for more innovation, you know, both in terms of the controls and the risks, uh, sorry, risk controls, risk mitigation strategies, also in customer experience and and OID Now does you know, a lot of work with fintechs, for instance, and they've really looked at the, that onboarding experience and how do you make KYC an advantage. Well, you, you don't get that as easily in a one-size-fits-all prescriptive environment. Risk-based allows for some intelligent risk-taking or calculated risk-taking, and that can lead to benefits for the vast majority who are legitimate you know, customers, third parties, business people. If I look at research we've done, uh, one of our, our companies, Passport at Moody's, uh, they did a whole piece, I think it was last year, around what does that experience lead to? If you get KYC right and you use these innovative approaches to, to do it better, faster, smoother, you know, more enjoyable for the customer, you get much better customer retention, for instance. It so starts to impact your bottom line, becomes a business advantage that you want to invest in. The prescriptive approach doesn't really allow for that. It does prevent poor practice disguised as innovation. So that's the other side of the argument saying, well, hey, some of that innovation could be poor and it may, maybe could be a, a weak link. Um, so, so that's kind of the advantage of it. But because you get the higher minimum standard, ultimately, I th- I'm probably biased because I'm in the UK. I'm used to talking about risk-based. I'm pro- I probably favor that approach for the, the innovation it's allowed. But yeah, th- those are the two sides of the argument as I see them. Probably not for me to say this one is definitively better, but as I said, my opinion is risk-based maybe has a few few more advantages than the prescriptive approach.
0: Customer onboarding processes remain a much fought over area of a service provider's customer experience. How can banks balance their customers' desire to be onboarded in the automated and digital only manner that they have become accustomed with local regulatory and KYC and AML requirements?
1: People and technology. It's it's a fairly casual answer, but it, but it is genuinely true in this case. Um, if you don't have the right people, then you're not going to understand this stuff well enough. You're not going to have the experts in the room who can say, hey, this is the relevant risk assessment. These are the policies that we need for these specific customers and for these specific products and these specific geographies because of these regulations and et cetera, et cetera. So First of all, you've got to have the people who understand the risk and know what they need to do, or at least have an idea of what they're going to ask for. And then they've actually got to be able to map that and go, right, well, these are the technology elements we need in our product. Here's the workflow. These are the flow charts. I need They need to be able to work with your technologists, with your product managers, with your commercial people so they can understand the implications. Can they work with your marketing people so they can understand what claims they can and can't make um, and, and be accurate in what they say to their, their customers? Then you think about the technology, right? So you've identified what you want to do and what you need to do, and you've you've picked your approach and you've collaborated with colleagues. Now, do you have the customer lifecycle management, the CLM solution that can pull that together? We talked about silos before. There are a number of tools now on the market where you can start to build a lot of this stuff, you know, no or low code. So have you got the relevant data for those? Have you got the relevant inputs, relevant analytics, the API connectivity? Again, think about sort of, uh, what No ID now does, you know, those APIs are, are essential, um, whereas maybe years gone by, you know, last decade or two, it, it wasn't as much. Now you really can't be doing it doing it without them. Once you've got the technology, you've got to think around how are we going to work? So there's the, the sort of classic movement we've seen of people thinking you've got to have this big waterfall approach of I'm going to design it all up front. I do it's big rollout. and It's all going to be planned out to the last bullet point doesn't really work anymore in the environment. There's a new risk, a new regulation, a new set of people, a new type risk typology or criminal typology that you've got to react to. So can you move to agile? Can you make iterative change? Can you have a perpetual KYC process so that you're staying on top of your risk and not sort of having that one and done, which doesn't work, <laughs> frankly, um, or, or is you know a lot of people in the industry don't think it works. I, I may correct myself before I get in trouble. Are you getting the most out of the technology on the market? Again, it goes back to people. You've got to have people that can understand it, people that know how to measure it, people that know how to assess its performance. I would say there is a lot of the technology that isn't being used, in my opinion. I think there's there's more out there than I, I commonly see in anyone's one stack. Part of that, I think, is because people haven't got used to making the business cases well enough. I mean, there's business cases to be made, but we may be as an industry, KYC industry vendors and, and, our customers have not got good enough yet at packaging up that into one or two pages that goes on a CFO or a COO's desk and says, "Hey, we're going to need to increase the budget this year, but here's the return on investment. I'm reducing your risk profile this much. We're going to improve customer experience this much, which is going to lead to more retention or more revenue. We're going to reduce our onboarding time, but with stricter controls because we're investing this technology up front. Maybe, maybe the jury's still out. Maybe people will tell me actually the tech isn't good enough, but." Uh, I tend to think there's more that could be done with more ambition and, and better business case building. There's probably something in between. Uh, I would just say that people that rely on Google, SharePoint, PDF documents, email, you know, you see audit chains in email sometimes when you go to someone who, who is behind the curve on what's out there. I, I don't think that is now, now good enough in, in a world where there's so much tech availability that, that can solve some of these problems and give you time to do that the anti-financial crime job better
0: what types of technology and which platforms do you think that are available today that are not currently being used in the UK market
1: i think it, it depends on segments and where industries are in their sort of we talk about it in terms of kyc maturity um, so you'll get those right that are still literally doing everything manually still right like they will meet the client they'll take a photocopy or They'll say, "Well, if an accountant signs this document, then it's valid um, because that's how things used to be done, and we used to think that accountants, doctors, and lawyers were all trustworthy for you know whatever reason." So you've got people who still do that in terms of their identity. They will still just go manually onto like the HMT site and check the names by hand. And if you're doing that, you don't have time to do much else. So you could start with you know real basic. Can you do EKYC, EIDV, two plus two checks? Uh, identity verification checks. there's obviously a number of providers including ID now. Can you package that up as I said with CLM solutions, which i'm I'm a big fan of. I think it makes a lot more sense to have sort of one system that pulls together all these things so that you can then actually have a holistic risk view rather than look at as I say looking at things in silos. And rather than just get doing sort of your basic screening, are you using adverse media properly? Are you using analytics that can pull out the risks signals? from the raw data. Uh, so one example is the Shell Company piece I mentioned earlier. It's one thing to look at a company and say that company exists on Company's house. So what? <laughs> you know, Company's House is well publicized for it is not given the powers right now. I think they are trying to change this, but it does not have the powers right now to sort of say no, this looks like a bad company. We're not going to let them set up. Basically if you pay your 13, 15 pounds, you can set up a company. And then the details go in and There are some rules around what you have to update and what goes active inactive but it exists so if your process is does this company exist is it does it exist in the registry it doesn't tell you a huge amount do you have as i say, do you have the analytics in place to say this one looks like a company we need to do more due diligence on Um, and there are solutions out there but i haven't seen them widely procured
0: how important are identity verification and customer onboarding solutions in contributing to a safer and more secure crypto exchange
1: In a word, very um, you know, I don't see how they're going to be able to do it out without, without these sorts of technologies. you know many of the, the cipher punks and, and the sort of original mailing lists and sort of crypto originals might not like to hear it, but you have to balance the right of privacy with the right of society to protect itself as long as tools, and it's not just crypto, right? Lots of Cash is still king in the laundering world. Um, but there are other assets as well. These things get used to launder, and therefore you have to have controls. And the main one we really have is, is knowing these identities, knowing doing the KYC effectively, right? Because at some point, if a crime has uh, occurred and the an investigation has happened, and they've started to be able to trace some things, they need to be able to go to the entities that maybe have facilitated this unknowingly and say, Hey, we need to know who the customer ABC123 is because you know we, we we need to start fleshing out this investigation. And if you can't do it because you haven't done good identity verification, and it was either didn't exist or wasn't of a robust enough standard that it was very easy for a a potential criminal to you know fake it. And you know, there's obviously publicized examples of where people have just sort of photoshopped or deep faked their way through these processes. If if you have a system that allows for that, then you're not going to be able to answer that law enforcement investigations question well enough, um, or at all, potentially. So yeah, you, you're going to need to have this stuff. I, I believe to be a relevant crypto firm or exchange moving forward. Like you might exist for a while, right, in some somewhere that doesn't have really strict regulations, or or let's just say mature regulation, because the ones are able to meet that standard. Are more likely to earn trust from third parties from the the mainstream um if this market does you know recover from this whole crypto winter thing and goes on I, you know for what it's worth i i I think there'll be a role for it like i you know, I don't know the future obviously but i I don't sort of believe in this is the end of all crypto I think it's just still being explored it's still early. The other thing around these crypto exchanges that I think they've got to look at is not just the individuals, right? But what other businesses are they doing? Are they exchanging with? What other crypto businesses? And you might have one that is very reputable, does all the right KYC checks on their customers. But if they're interacting with our companies, do they know how to make sure those companies are doing the relevant KYC checks? Is one VASP or virtual asset service provider, uh, sometimes Casp, uh, crypto asset service provider. Have you understood which ones are risky and which ones are not? And therefore, have you made your choices accordingly? If you don't do that, then you're going to be at more risk um, of having money move in that has touched these privacy technologies like Mixers, like Monero, these other points that are weak links in the system. We did a whole series on this on, on the, uh, the Moody's podcast with different experts from law enforcement and blockchain analytics and financial crime consultants and practitioners, which I'd encourage people to listen to because the guests were just were fantastic. Um, where we looked at sort of the opportunities and risks and that privacy piece came up a lot. So I think knowing your third parties as well as your individual, you know, trading customers is also a big piece that that needs to be be looked at.
0: What with increasing focus from the FCA and UK government on regulating the crypto industry, how do you foresee the near future of crypto in the UK? What challenges and obstacles do you envisage? What advice would you give? What should organizations be focusing on? And finally, armed with this information, what opportunities are there for companies that want to trade and accept crypto assets?
1: I think the thing I think about in the UK is that there's still a a big crypto community here, particularly in London. Um, And perhaps it's still the only city in the world. I, I won't claim to know definitively, but people talk about it's the one place where lawmakers, the financiers, and the technologists all exist in the same place, often within a 20-minute walk <laughs> of each other. So that supports, you know, some fairly big leaps forward. We we saw it and still see it with the fintech boom and sort of how that mix basically made London the center of gravity for fintech. Um and you can debate, is crypto its own thing? Is it part of fintech? Et cetera. So it doesn't really matter. That the the point is having that here in the UK means. You know, there will generally be ways found to collaborate or when a new regulation comes in, there'll be, you know, there'll be very smart people working on it. And obviously you've got the legal sector here as well, which is very good and you know, internationally renowned. I think there will be short term disruption as that we can see it, right? There is, there is disruption. And journalists will write about it and their job is at the moment, unfortunately, to get clicks, <laughs> um, right? Get clicks so that that's the business model. Until that business model changes, there will be certain headlines that maybe are more alarming than they need to be. Um, I believe actually I've been told that most of the time the journalist that wrote the article doesn't write the headline because they make it a separate job. So there's they can do what they want, which is uh, a strange strange thing to think about. Ultimately, though, I just expect that the the industry will evolve with the regulation. There's a number of the large actors that have been crying out for regulation, right? They, they go, hey, that will help us make that bridge from sort of early adopter or early majority to the next bit of that, that classic curve, adoption curve. And when people know things regulated and they know the authorities involved, they feel far more comfortable getting involved. Um, so I don't think it's going to suddenly wipe them out. I just think there'll be you know, a period, as I say, of evolution of ad- adaptation. There may be those that go, right, well, we're not going to operate here, we want to go operate somewhere with looser regulations. But again, I think mainly about the that majority in that curve. And if I know someone is based in the UK under their authority or some country where I'm not based under some authority that I don't really understand, then I'm probably going to go with the UK firm. So I mean that only speaks to your local domestic market, but yeah, you could expand that outright if if the the EU does more more regulation then and then you have to go outside the EU and then Again, you, that's a bigger market in the US. People are going to generally want to transact with the, with the US entity and, and so on and so forth. So I think that's going to be thought about. You've also then, if you're going to do this adaptation and evolution, you've got to retain the right people. We talked about that earlier, people with the right expertise, people that can speak and, to and understand what the regulators are after, can speak and understand what the vendors offer because the technology piece is how you're ultimately going to comply with a lot of this stuff. You've got to have the right systems, controls, processes and controls that match your policies. So having the relevant technology, making sure that's configurable as well. Configurability in tech is, I think, now a big, big theme um, because as things evolve and we expect them to continue to evolve, it's not going to be, right, we put this regulation in and that's it. We talked about uh, you know, Agile earlier. I think the lawmakers are catching up to that. They, before, you could set something and the industry would kind of be stable for 10, 20 years because there wasn't that much change. We're in this period where financial services is changing constantly. And therefore, regulation is far more likely to reflect that. And therefore, your controls, systems, policies, processes—all the things we just talked about—are going to have to also be able to change constantly. And if you don't have tools that can do that on the fly, then it's going to be harder for you. Um, we actually had a guy from a consultancy called Beyond, uh, Matt Neal, came on and talked to us, and they've done a whole report on this, RegTech report on this. Um, I really encourage people to read that. They talk about how to find the right vendors for you specifically how to manage the process, how to manage when you need to break up with a vendor. They use an analogy of sort of dating through to marriage, through to divorce, um, in some cases. And that that's I think helpful for people that are, are trying to get on top of this or maybe feel they're behind where they need to be like that could maybe help them take a couple of steps forward. Ultimately though, think that anyone that wants to be is involved in crypto, wants to accept crypto payments or, or has some exposure, which is kind of everyone now, right? Even if you're only dealing, dealing in fiat you your customers may have made some money in crypto, and they want to put it cash out and put it in. You you have some exposure. You're not doing anything new. You're just being asked to do to be able, you know to know your customer, know your third party, know your transaction, demonstrate a well thought out risk based approach. In the UK, we also talked about uh, one size versus risk based earlier, and you might need additional tools. But that that's just the effort that's required, and anything good or anything profitable generally requires some effort and some investment. So. I don't think it's anything radical being done here. It's just applying the same principles to this evolving market. And that's going to require a bit of of effort.
0: Are there any elements from the crypto world, for example, superior technology or less cumbersome, faster, more user-orientated processes that traditional banking can learn from? If so, what could this mean for the future of KYC? In,
1: In this case, I don't think it's necessarily about crypto. I, I, I go back to the broader fintech market, of which in the past I've often put crypto in because it's made more sense for what I've been doing in, in various roles. It's, it's not sort of say that's wrong or right, just that it's been, been helpful to frame it that way sometimes. And I think traditional banking has and continues to learn from the fintech market at large. Um, if you think around the sort of changes in how, how they do onboarding, uh, the investments they've made in their, their apps, Lessening of investment in bricks and mortar in some cases, not all cases. Um, that's I think all can be at least partially credited to the growth of fintech and other types of financial services, some of which is crypto. And I think predominantly it's a mindset shift. It's not we have to do these things and we'll do it our way because we're the only game in town. It's customer experience. Let's compete on customer experience. And if you think about what fintech has brought competition-wise to sector. Um, overall. And sort of, they talk about the unbundling of financial services. It used to be you went to a few places that did everything. Now it's like you can go to many hundreds of places to do what specific thing you want. And how do fintechs market? Well, a lot of them, not all, but a lot of them market their onboarding, which is effectively the KYC process. Get onboarded in two minutes, three minutes, whatever, some number of minutes rather than hours or days that's what they market. Now, obviously, once they, you're through that and you've gone, oh, that would be convenient, I do it. Then they hope to you know, wow you and retain you with their features and functionality and, and the other elements of what they've built. But what they're marketing to, you, their hook is onboarding. And banks never did that before. You see now they talk about customer service 24-7, one of the UK banks. And I wonder if some of that, again, is driven by trying to chase that customer experience, but for a slightly different lens, you know, the ability to speak to people is something that fintechs don't do super well, but it's still on the same theme, right? Of help making customers like the experience rather than competing on, hey, we'll give you a hundred pounds if you sign up to this account or, hey, we'll give you a 0.02% better rate than, than the guy down next door. That I think has changed. I think that will continue to happen. And there's also an element of there's an expectation that within apps specifically, you expect to be able to do more. More different services, open banking maybe hasn't gone to the heights that people thought it would, but again, it's still early, so maybe that that will um, continue to uh, allow for innovation and and people wanting to do more within one place. Because again, convenience, convenience is king in this sort of world where people can't walk to the end of the road to pick up their takeaway; they get it delivered. (laughs) I don't do that; it still baffles me. But there's clearly a market because a bunch of people, a bunch of companies have sprung up. I think the one thing the banks are going to have to think about though, with all of this learning, is We've talked about breaking the silos down and, and sometimes you'll hear about people talk about legacy systems and that's fine to talk about, hey, we've got these old systems. It creates a challenge. What sometimes I think is frustrating is there's this idea that legacy systems have to be permanent. At some point, right, if, if, if so, at some point, if you're not willing to change it, then you're, you can, can't move forward. And it also means that whoever, that, whoever built that system has got you, right, you're, then you're now captive rather than choosing to work with them or partner with them which you hope is sort of the, you know, people always talk about vendors being partners and it's a, a nicer way to think about it. If you say, I literally can't change, you're no longer a partner, <laughs> you're a captive. So I think that at some point, the banks will have to go through some painful change management and see which parts of those legacy systems, sort of air quotes, they want to um, want to start replacing or at least run in parallel processes with APIs, with SaaS, with, with different different pieces. So again, they can probably learn that from fintechs and crypto that haven't had that problem. So they haven't had to do the change, but they have shown them what sort of the the new way could be. So at least they've got something to aim at.
0: Looking ahead then, Alex, what do you see as some of the major UK and European fintech trends that we can expect in the coming years?
1: So I've I've read a lot, and I'm sure everyone else has that has an interest in sort of fintech market that this is, is like the dot-com bubble, right? Like we're in that sort of bit, a lot of charts look similar, certain signs look similar. And if that is the case, then I think you can sort of embrace it, right? Like you can't change macroeconomics on your own, but you can you can learn from what's gone before and you can sort of embrace the challenge. So we've had the easier times of fairly on-tap venture capital money. And now it's a little bit more reluctant, a little bit more challenging to get, maybe a lot more, but potentially I'm, I'm not someone out there looking for it. So whereas it was relatively easy. Now it's more difficult. You move into these more careful times. Business models are going to be vetted. Profitability is going to be key, right? So it can't just be, we'll do everything anymore. It's what do we do really well? What are people willing to pay for? How can I finance my own growth, ideally, rather than go, oh, I'll just raise another another round. Everyone loves a big valuation and a, a picture on LinkedIn. You could start to get away from that. And that could be a really good thing because just like the dot-com sort of boom and bust and, and bubble, whatever you want to call it. A bunch of really, really good companies came out of that in terms of you know commercial success and and choice in the market and all those things. So you might end up potentially with less fintechs, but the ones that remain will be really good ones for consumers and for up third parties to work with. Yeah. Uh, I maybe stay away from giving a, a pure prediction because who am I? But reading what I'm reading, that, that seems to be the closest thing to a trend and, That's how I could imagine it playing out if if that trend is correct.
0: With increasing importance placed on fintech, partly due to pandemic-induced acceleration, what are some of the dangers and challenges associated with banks and financial institutions rapidly implementing fintech and red tech solutions?
1: I'd probably go back to maybe the word challenge rather than danger, but there's that challenge of can you change your mindset? We talked about mindset earlier. So are you committed to working fast? Are you committed to experimenting? Are you willing for something to fail, iterate on it, and then go again rather than go, no, project didn't work, kill it, go back to what we know. If you want to change, you've got to change, right? But you, it's not necessarily going to be successful straight away. So there's an element of full commitment um, and doing this. Otherwise, you're going to waste a bunch of time because you've you thrown the towel too early. There's a saying, right? That perfection is the enemy of excellence. I think that applies a lot here. In traditional organizations, run into a lot of people who they, they're so desperate to be correct that they're willing to go slowly. And sometimes it m- might be better to actually you know, get out of that, you know, they call it analysis paralysis, right? You know, can you go a lot faster, fail at something, but take, take what you've learned and then go again and be on your second project while, while the first one is still doing research. And then you get to a closer to the right answer before, before they even launch anything. And that goes to implementing things, doing partnerships, producing your own products and innovation. Yeah, I think that's that's a big lesson um, and is a challenge. If you don't, if we talk about the danger, if you aren't able to do that, then those third parties, whether it be FinTechs, RegTechs, some other third party, they don't have the time horizon that, that you have as a larger, more established player. So they may move on and go work with someone else who can. And that will be the thing that you've got to think about is you know, the opportunity cost if you can't work at their pace, there's probably a middle ground, right? Like both sides need each other. Um, so it might not be going up breakneck speed like some want to, but it also can't be 15 committees or whatever to make a decision. People have got to be willing to, you know, as I say, make, make mistakes but already expect those mistakes and then do, use the information to do something with, at which point they're just part of the process. Um Again, another phrase that I've heard from another podcast, obviously we do our one, but I I listen to quite a few as well when I'm on a run or whatever. And, you know, action is the cure to anxiety. And then you've got a lot of risk-averse people in our world, right? And who have a lot of anxiety about change, but that's going to have to be overcome to keep up. So as I say, the way you do that, according to this saying is, is you take action constantly, get into a continuous momentum um, with things. And when something doesn't go right, you know, take a deep breath, figure it out, note it down, bring in whoever you need to to fix it. But don't then stop and panic and, and you know and throw it out. The last thing I'd probably say is the fun. You know, remember the fundamentals. Any partnership, vendor relationship, uh, joint go to market, whatever it is, both sides need to be commercially successful from it. Otherwise, it neither party wins. Right? If you hit a vendor so hard that they're not making any money then you put them at risk and if they go out of business then then you're going to have a big change management issue if you hit someone so hard for price then they don't want to work with you or, or they can't get it done then you're both going to lose eventually if you're doing a joint go to market and you don't both invest then into the sort of aligned goals then it's going to it's going to fail by design so making sure both parties are commercially honest with each other is a challenge, but it can be done. And if you do that, you can avoid the danger of a project that looks really good at the start, but then, then falls over because, you know, what one, one team was too, too competitive for the other or too, too eager to win rather than look a little bit more longer term. Hopefully you found that interesting. And if not, you now know why I'm normally the interviewer rather than the interviewee. Normal service will resume soon with free blockbuster episodes coming after Thanksgiving for our US listeners. Uh, this will be from the end of November and the start of December with a focus on investigative journalism. A couple of great examples of it, uh, with really big stories that have been covered. And then an episode talking about why it matters so much and, and what we can do to support it. Really excited for you all to hear those as the guests are absolutely top draw. And I learned a ton from all of them. Look out for those on your LinkedIn feeds and your podcast apps. And if you have a topic, story or event you'd like us to cover, then reach out like Jody did and we'll do our best to make it happen.
0: Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com podcasts.